You are listening to Sing Amen, Ministering Through Music. I am Jennifer Kerr Budziak, and welcome to our podcast. This past summer, GIA welcomed our new editor for Spanish and bilingual resources, Mr. Peter Kolar. He grew up near Detroit and spent many years living and working in Chicago, and now he lives in El Paso, Texas. Today's podcast is a conversation with him about his life and work and his reflections on his experiences of music ministry within bilingual and multicultural communities. He was one of the leaders for the GIA showcase at NPM last summer, and he's been active in NPM for years, giving workshops on bilingual and Spanish music. Uh, He's a composer in his own right, and he has his own blog here on the Sing Amen site called Cantemos Amen. So please look for his voice to keep adding to the conversation here at singamen.gaamusic.com. Shortly after he started at GIA, Peter and I sat down and recorded this podcast interview, which we're sharing with you today. Obviously, this conversation happened well before the tragic terrorist attacks at El Paso last month, which Peter wrote about in his last blog post. So if you have not read it, please do. It can be found at singamen.giamusic.com with my own blog and with Marilyn Beery's keyboard to keyboard site for organists. A brief commercial and heads up, if your familiarity with Sing Amen is primarily through this podcast, you may be missing out on some great material. We invite you to head over to the website and see the major expansion we've gone through over the summer. There are now three writers for the site. I still run the Ministering Through Music blog and host this podcast, which will continue to focus on general music ministry formation. Peter Kolar has started writing for the Cantemos Amen blog, focusing on bilingual and Spanish language music ministry, and organist and composer Marilyn Beery has taken on the keyboard-to-keyboard strand of the site, aimed at those who wish to become more proficient at the organ, particularly pianists who wish to gain more facility on the organ, but aren't exactly sure where to start. Her site contains both blog posts and links to free downloads of some excellent and accessible organ music for people who are proficient on the keyboard, but maybe newer to the pipe organ. So please come over to sigamen.giamusic.com and check out our new site. So I've known Peter Kolar for more than 20 years, and he is one of my favorite people. So just sitting down with him to talk about life and ministry and everything was a treat for me. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So here we go. So Peter Kolar, welcome to GIA. Thank you. It is great to have you. So I'd love to talk with you about your experience with you know, bilingual liturgy and living in the Southwest and just what life is like there. Um, but before we even get to that, can you just tell us a little about you? Who's Peter Kolar? Yeah, I mean, sure. I've known you for 20, <laughs> 25 years or something, but. Well, I am uh, new to GIA, but not new to publishing. I've uh, been doing this for many years. So I have my hands in a lot of aspects of publishing and of course, ministry. And you know, that's a great part of what has shaped me continues to form and form and manifest you know, in my faith. Music ministry has always been a huge part of my life. I grew up uh, with music and faith intertwined in my life uh, from an early age. Even as young as second grade, I was playing piano in the church. Really? I played the music for my own first communion mass. <laughs> Wait, seriously? Yes, I was, I was a pianist. And simultaneous to that uh, was this kind of formation within, within family. So my father was a self-taught accordion player. Really? And he and my 
brothers and sisters, five of us, we all played together in a polka band. So part of my upbringing is accordion and uh, learning polka melodies, playing um, festivals. And you play accordion too? And I do play accordion, yes, proudly. And uh, and like and love to use it in creative ways, but a lot of that stems from, of course, uh, you know that upbringing, playing in in kind of an ensemble and learning melodies by ear and knowing how a tune goes and how that fits in place with you know the other instruments uh, with whom you're playing. I grew up in the Detroit area, and we would play festivals around the city: the the Hamtramck Polish Festival and the Detroit Polish Festival downtown in Hart Plaza. So that was very much a part of my um, musical formation. But simultaneous with that, we would also play in the church, and so that's why I played for masses such as my first communion and sure. and such like that. And and I was taking lessons by second grade. I attended St. Clement Parish in Centerline, Michigan. Mm-hmm which was staffed by Racine Dominican nuns. And so my, my music teacher was this old, old nun. <laughs> I just thought she was so old when, when I knew her as a second grader. But she was just a great, great person. You know, so I took, I took piano lessons. I actually started out on violin, and I think I took violin for one week. One week. And then I went to piano. <laughs> but piano was my passion. And, and I had a knack for picking up melodies. One of my first melodies I played was Star Wars and picking up things off the radio and things like that. So it was neat to see how that formation, both by way of the polka band, where we were just you know, learning melodies and, and honing our skills, kind of grew up alongside uh, some formal training. Right. And all that then translated to uh, a ministry within the church. By middle school, I was playing uh, with my brothers and sisters in a, a folk group. For they were the, called folk groups when I was yes, in high school. Folk, too. folk group, yeah. <laughs> and of course, we played all of the, what we would call the folk group classics. Yeah. I played behind a, a large upright piano and, uh, and my head was not tall enough to be seen from above it. So all those years I was known as the invisible pianist. <laughs> but that was, that was again part of, part of the formation. And uh, you know, I look back on that now and I say, well, that was, that was also my musical formation because in playing for liturgies and improvising, I was also developing a musical skill, very much in line with the with the tradition of you know the great composers who would do that. Sure. And, and it was really, you know, it was really in the church setting that that fostered a lot of that artistry. So it's neat to be kind of in 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 line with that awesome heritage. I remember when I was in some point, I think college music theory, and where they were teaching us figured bass. And at some point, it occurred to me, wait a minute, this is basically an 18th century lead sheet. And once I realized yes. that, I was like, oh, I get it. This sort of divide has grown up between there's the classical stuff that you read exactly precisely off the page and then this improvisatory kind of thing. It's like, no, they've, yep. they've been in church. They've been doing that in church as long as we've had church musicians. The key word is we're reading the G sus chords, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> Way back when. It's yeah, pretty amazing. they just said 4-3. And you had a, right? Yeah. So I, uh, I went to high school in Wisconsin at St. Lawrence Seminary. It's actually the same alma mater as uh, Father Ed Foley. Oh, really? And at, during that time, uh, I accompanied the choir, and we had chapel three times a day. So I was like wow. literally the staff accompanist as a student wow. you know, for all of these liturgies and, and for all of you know, prayer times and moments. So I was kind of like the piano guy all through that. But that, you know, again within the context of liturgy and, and, and prayer was also developing my musical skills. And it was good enough um, for me to audition both to get into Interlochen 
music camp. So I attended oh. there for four or five years, I believe, I uh, in the summer. Too. Yes, oh, amazing place. A great place. It was just I owe a lot of my you know musical development to that. And I you're just sat down there in the middle of the woods with a whole bunch of people who I don't awesome know about you, talent. but who were always way way more talented than <laughs> yes. I was, and realized, wow, the bar is really high here, and yeah. yeah. Yeah, you just grow and grow and grow, and there's nothing else to do because that's what you're there to do. It's Talk wonderful. about a, you know just a unique environment that was just yeah. Oh. Uh, and then I auditioned to get into Northwestern into the mm -hmm. piano performance program, and so got accepted. And and oh, wait, you um, would, I don't think I knew you did per piano performance at Northwestern. I started in piano you're, performance. Okay. yes. But you got in on piano performance I, at Northwestern, and that that takes serious chops. Yeah, so it was, wow, <laughs> that was, it was so pretty you were amazing. Okay. Yeah, I was. I did. I held my own, you know, yeah. and, and wow. I soon came to realize that I was not going to be a, a, you know, a concert pianist. That was not my calling or, mm -hmm. or gift. And I was okay with that because I really, I really felt a strong attraction to the compositional side of things. Mm. And so um, right away I was already, you know, trying to get my mind into theory and composition. And so by, by the time it came to uh, declare a major, I entered into the composition program formally. Wow. So that's where I finished my degrees. Oh, wow. So, uh, so that was really neat, and you know, I had I always had a, a a great admiration both for the performers who were able to you know just whip out this wonderful, amazing technical wizardry, but I also saw you know in some of my colleagues who were just amazing when it came to execution on the piano that sometimes their musicality ended there, mm -hmm. and so the interest of the why and the how and all the the nuance of why this composition exists in the way it does. Um, I wanted to get there, you know, yeah. I wanted to do that. And so, you know, I explored a little bit in, in jazz, but not much, and conducting, you know, sure. I was taking those basic classes and stuff, but mostly in, in composition. And I, I remember my composition teacher very frustrated with me because I was just, I was so stubborn. And I, you know, I wish, I look back and wish that I was more open-minded mm -hmm. uh, and more receptive. Uh, but I was really, I was really ingrained in this. You know, I want to create music that's beautiful and da da da. But it tended to be very traditional and like Western harmony. Yes. Yeah. And he would say, you know, you need to open your mind. You need to free yourself of this. And he would become very frustrated when I would bring in a song or something. <laughs> so he was, you know, wanting to push me more. All my teachers wanted to. So that's where my my, yeah. my formalized training lies. And then there's a neat story behind this because at the same time, like throughout all my life, there was this parallel through ministry. Mm -hmm. As a freshman, I came onto Northwestern, onto the scene, and I wanted to continue playing in church, as I always had all my life, essentially, <laughs> up to that point. And it just so happened that one of my classmates from high school called me because he was um, he's from Chicago, and he said, hey, you know, my associate pastor here has this marimba group at this parish in, in Chicago, and, you know, he's teaching him some songs, but he was wondering if, if you want to come and help out. And I was like... That sounds neat. I don't know anything about marimba, but you know, I did play marimba in band and a couple pieces. Sure. And I did percussion and that kind of stuff. And I hopped on the train. Wow. You know, get on the red line. Mm -hmm. Go all the way down Head to the down. city. Yeah. And <laughs> and by the by the time you know, I would reach Forty Seventh Street, Thirty Fifth Street. <laughs> and I would um, hop on the bus and head into back of the yards neighborhood. It has this horrible reputation, you know, for crime and poverty and drugs and gang activity and this is where this church was mm -hmm. and I would go right into the heart of that and what I found was this amazing faith and this community and this expression of Catholicism that I was just like overwhelmed with that it was so beautiful and vibrant yeah and in this setting 
existed this marimba group <laughs> of all things. Like yeah. who would have thunk, right? This great kind of assembling of youth who you wouldn't necessarily pin as those who would have an innate musical talent, and yet here they were memorizing these tunes. popular uh, folk tunes that were basically a melody and a harmony and the marimba is a large instrument it's about you know four or five feet wide and so you uh, you can with, have two or three kids you can have up long. to four really? players on one, on one instrument so it's kind of like this inherent team building along with the musicality and so they watch each other and they play in a pattern I'm making motions here with my hands but <laughs> yeah. you know as you're playing something you have your eyes on your neighbor who should be playing the same thing and if you're not then you know one of you's off and instinctively, hopefully, you both yes. adjust. Yes, and so you so kind of move in this and, fluid yeah. pattern, and then you have a bass player that plays an Alberti bass pattern mm -hmm. based on chord symbols. And so they were playing all these wonderful folk melodies. I came on the scene um, and, and started embracing these melodies and teaching them more, but also doing more kind of complicated arrangements with them. Mm -hmm. You have four players to work with, so imagine you know, sure. each of them with two sticks, so you can start constructing some wonderful harmonies and... But then again, you have this great percussion instrument with sticks, and it has a, you know, an inherent knock to it when you play it. Right. And so when you play Bach Inventions on it, they sound wonderful. So, I think that was how I first, you know, quote-unquote, met you, or you know, found out who Peter Kolar was, was through the marimba group. <laughs> and I kind of was the same way. It's like, a marimba group? Well, that's sort of interesting. I don't know what that's about. And then I think one after the other, I think I heard them do the Colores... And then the Bach A minor invention. <laughs> right. Do, 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 That's do, exactly do, the one, do, yeah. Do. I was completely, you know, took couple hours to scrape my jaw off the floor. <laughs> it's nothing short of enthralling to hear and watch them. Yeah. Because here you have these kids and you know the kids have the story of their own. Like I described this neighborhood is mm -hmm. it's a neighborhood that's been written off by society you know as negligible as mm -hmm. not counting you know as not having worth and yet from amongst this community is this great talent that all it needed was someone to recognize it or invite mm -hmm. you know this talent to, to come through. And so, yeah, these pieces, uh, including these Bach inventions, or we, we learned the, the, the little fugue with all its parts. The, the G minor little fugue. Wow. Yeah, three players on a marimba doing their parts, <laughs> just learned by memory. And they'll, they'll see it as a cool challenge. Yeah. They don't realize they're playing this you know, music from yeah. the 1700s that you know, has this wonderful harmonic construction. They're not even thinking yeah. that. They're just like, eh, it's a cool piece. Sounds kind of yeah. neat, you know, that kind of thing. You know, this is, this is the group that, that I worked with. And so I, I was 
transformed by this whole experience. And I spent a good, you know, 15 years here in Chicago working with this group. And so did you live and, in back of the yards also? Yes. That yeah. Time? yeah. Lived right in the neighborhood. And, and so I, I would do masses, some with the marimba, some with the youth group. Another thing that I did was accompany the Spanish choir on organ. You know, so that was, that was my foray into Hispanic music was not guitar or right. piano, but, organ. but organ. Yeah. And so Very was this for you, your sort of your first Hispanic music ministry. Yeah, in a formalized in there, way. In a yeah, formalized way. They, okay. they needed an organist for the choir, and so I would yeah. I would come and work with the the children's choir and the marimba, and then stick around for the later mass, which was the organ choir mass conducted under a Spaniard. So you know, in addition to technique and the glimpse into the Hispanic music, it was also this you know this liturgical repertoire from Spain, from, from Spain, 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 yeah. From, yeah. Wow. Uh, which happens to include, you know, pieces like Gabarain and Palazón and Erdo Sain. These are composers who are prolific and really rooted in this liturgical tradition. So it was, uh, you know, wow. that was just a great baptism into all things Hispanic Catholic. And as my wife jokes, because she's from Mexico, from Mexico, and where we live now is, is El Paso, which is mm-hmm. a border city with, which borders Ciudad Juarez, uh, right along the, the Texas and Mexico border. But she jokes that I became more Mexican here in Chicago than I could have been El Paso because it's it's almost as if these traditions were maintained in this really pure mm-hmm. way and and able to because of the environment uh, be maintained in this wondrous manifestation. So I got I got to wow. be a beneficiary of all that and it very much formed language. Sure. Because <laughs> um, I, I did not grow up speaking Spanish, although my parents are Spanish speaking. I did not grow up speaking Spanish. But also inform my faith and my, my liturgical training, you know, as sure. it were. So all those things kind of come together in what is Peter wow. Golar. When I first came to Chicago, my first parish, as it were, I, I spent a couple of years working in Little Village. So not too far, I guess, from back of the yards. Not far at all. I had got an after-school children's choir going. And it was nothing like working in the suburbs where it's like, oh, well, you know, we have cross country. And then I got back. The, all these kids wanted to come be part of it. You know, and it was boys and it was girls and it was this crazy mishmash of kids. And it was so much fun. There was this whole sense that the adults in the community, their parents, I got to know a lot of the moms and the teachers in the school and the administrations. It was like they put this circle of protection around their children. And so the, just the love and the care for the kids to make sure that their kids were safe was I've never really encountered that anywhere else to that level. And it was and there was just this tenderness and warmth that was so, so, so beautiful. And yeah. It was yeah, a, you really a described it well. It, it's a beautiful thing in that also there's a visual to it because these you know neighborhoods of all these row houses and then rising above it are oftentimes these large towers of these churches. The church. You have this notion where you know the church is the faith and the social center mm-hmm. of the entire community. And, and like you describe it, you put out the call and they're there. I often describe that whole work with that group as less, than, less about music and, and more just about community. It was just about building these relationships and music, beautiful music, just happened to be this wonderful byproduct of that. And so we, we made music together, but it was just, it was so much deeper than that on a, on a faith and personal level. A few podcasts ago, and I think you said you heard this one, I had done a podcast with um, Phil Konzik about their parish in Holland, Michigan, which had been a Dutch Reformed community that 40 or 50 years ago began to have an influx of people from Mexico coming and settling there. And so that whole podcast episode was a, sort of about 
how that community, you know, what started as two separate communities were able to kind of come together and form a single unit and a, a single parish. And, you know, they just talked a lot about what it was like and what, what that community is like. So you're in El Paso. And I particularly wanted to talk to you about this. It's, so your experience of how multicultural, multilingual liturgy works down by the border, that's probably really, really different from the experience that they had in Michigan. So, yes. Yeah. And, and, so I'd, um, I'd love to get a sense of you know, just the contrast. Some of us might think sometimes that when we talk about multicultural liturgy, we're talking about one thing or bilingual Spanish, English, that there's some formula or way it happens right. or way it works. But... It's going to be so different everywhere. I live in El Paso now, and mm-hmm. so as I you know, observe what church is, kind yeah. of in what we call the borderland, it's nothing short of fascinating. First, even before you talk about faith, you just have to talk about the realities of the population. And you have these, these two cities, which are sister cities, but on opposite sides of an international border. Mm-hmm. But they're very much symbiotic, both in terms of business and finance and all that. But on a more closer way, in terms of families. Families are intertwined across the border and you have relatives on either side and they come and visit and and they live their lives happening to reside in houses here and there but continuing on as families and so then that also manifests itself by way of faith and so you have this community that's that's built around this very much uh, bilingual reality and it's bilingual in so much as uh, not everyone is necessarily bilingual but everyone seems to be open to the reality that both languages and cultures reside harmoniously side by side. That's the way life is there. Hmm. And it's not, it's not a difference or us, them. It's just both live <laughs> alongside Together. each other. Yeah. And so I think I can describe this best by just taking a little snapshot of the diocesan choir that I work with, in which I have music ministers from across the various parishes in the, in the diocese of El Paso. And I How have, many are there, by the way? Um, I can have um, between 40 and 90. And how many parishes? Uh, there's 56 about? parishes in the diocese. Oh. And it's a huge, huge That's region. That's very big. Yes. I <laughs> yeah. mean, to drive from one end of the diocese to the other would, it would take about three hours. Wow. Yeah, so so even mean, Chicago didn't prepare you for that. No, no, it's not it's, too far from that here. But I think it's, it's only maybe two hours. Yeah, yeah. it's it's pretty it's pretty vast. Um, wow. If if you're not familiar with just the dimensions of Texas, it it especially coming from the Midwest. Right. Yeah. If if you were to drive from Detroit to New York, it's about the same as El Paso to Houston, which is all in one state. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So you, you just get a, you just get a sense of the vastness. So you can yeah. obviously the dioceses are are structured in, in such a way they cover a lot of territory. But in El Paso, the the bulk of the population of the diocese resides in the city of El Paso itself. Uh, so among the parishes, there's several you know choir members, and I have you know some some just wonderful wonderful people in this diocesan choir, and some are. Uh, non-Latinos, they're non-Hispanic, and others are immigrants from Mexico, now legalized citizens in, in the United States. And I have folks who uh, primarily sing at Spanish masses, and when they sing at those masses, don't use a single written note. And I have others who can read an organ accompaniment or SATB harmony. Same you know, from so, octavos, yeah. Yeah, so you know they they come from varying traditions when it comes to Catholic music and, and how that music is realized at the parish level. But from the entire group, 
we all sing bilingually, and they don't bat an eyelash at singing an all-Spanish song or an all-English song, or of course mixing up the language in, in any number of very creative ways. So where do you pull your repertoire from for the diocesan choir? Is it just a bunch of different places? It's Catholic music. Catholic across the and board. And of course, you know, there's this vast heritage and treasury of, of Catholic music in English, but an equivalent of that exists in Spanish. And so you have, yes, Spanish hymnody and Spanish language chant and Spanish language folk music and Spanish language popular and kind of what we'd call Spanish language middle of the road and Spanish right. language praise and worship. And so that all exists. It can really run the, 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 the whole gamut of, of uh, Catholic repertoire in either language. It, it, it kind of like doubles the, the capacity. It's pretty, pretty yeah. fascinating. So do you have a sense, I mean, I know if there's not going to be one model that everyone goes by, but does El Paso have, you know, these are sort of the more English-speaking parishes, these are the Spanish-language-speaking parishes, or, you know, because in Chicago, and I think we talked about this in, you know, in that other podcast also, is that a lot of times what you have here is the equivalent of two parishes separated by language and culture that just sort of share the same building on a Sunday and they have very little to do with each other. Um, so I see less I see less of that because but because I, as I described the kind of the nature of the of the population and, and the the area in, in and of itself it just tends to be more more integrated. And so And the two languages have kind of been side by side down there kind of all along. Haven't yeah. They? Yeah. yeah so. they, they 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 live harmoniously <laughs> right. along, alongside each other. You'll have English masses in a parish uh, and, and Spanish masses. Mm-hmm. A handful of parish will have regular bilingual masses, but most of them tend to be one or the other language. But that said, it's you, you can't deny the the culture and the, and the presence of the, you know the assembly gathered at hand, which uh, even in the English language masses or will primarily be Hispanic surnames who right. are not unaccustomed to Spanish language as part of their daily life. And so, if you have bilingual or Spanish language music, it's not right. it's not something that you know gets people alarmed. It's very much just part and parcel of, of the daily life. It's, it's just a reflection. Here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's funny at the English masses, of course, the ones all all the music ministers playing all these English songs by David Hawes, by Marty Hogan, by mm-hmm. Michael Jonkis, by by all our all the composers that right. we would know and love. All the the choirs with Hispanic surnames. It's Martinez's and Rodriguez's and mm-hmm. and Hernandez's playing Blessed Are They. <laughs> but that's yeah. just, that's just the reality of it. And you know, and the families will go to either, either or of the masses. So I don't see the more stark parallel right. communities occupying a single building as was described in certain other cases. Right. Uh, that said, I know that. And I mean, Chicago, of course, has a history of that, and mm-hmm. it's one of our not one of the things that yeah. we're proudest of. You know, and I wouldn't say this is necessarily changes. a reality of, you know, an entire region or all of the Southwest or mm-hmm. everything west of the Mississippi, per se, but it is certainly something unique and characteristic of, of a specifically border region. It's wonderful. When you, yeah. think of, when you think of, for example, like the guidelines, guidelines for worship in multicultural or intercultural communities. The document Mark Francis worked on yes, about multicultural from FDLC. Liturgy. And it really, um, kind of the preamble to it, was always setting the tone that you know, we often make the mistake that multilingual or multicultural liturgies, what we describe as such, is trying to accomplish something that should have already been started outside of the liturgy. Yeah. We're using the liturgy as the starting point. And so it's neat to see that in this region where I live, that the liturgy is actually a reflection of the reality that's already mm-hmm. taking place of communities living alongside each other. 
When we were talking yesterday, you you mentioned about the time that you traveled to El Salvador, which was, I think you said that was your mother's native country, um, for uh, Romero's canonization. Yes. You want to talk a little bit about that? Tell us a story. (laughs) This is is an exciting time in the events of of my life, especially as a a Catholic. Um, Yeah, you're kind of becoming the musical saint maker here. (laughs) How many saints have you sung in the direction of sainthood? Through music, through music, I've had um, either direct involvement or indirect involvement in three now beatifications or canonizations. My mass setting Misa Luna was sung at the beatification mass for Stanley Rother in Oklahoma City. I actually was the, the pianist for the beatification mass of Solanus Casey, Solanus Casey yeah. in Detroit, Michigan. And, and most recently, I went on a personal pilgrimage along with members of my diocesan choir to sing for the canonization of Oscar Romero in El Salvador. So El Salvador is the country of my, uh, the birthplace of my mom. Of course, Oscar Romero was martyred there in 1980. And, uh, and so now his canonization was just, you know, a wonderful cause of, uh, of celebration and joy for, joy. This, for this, this country that, not unlike what I described earlier with Back of the Yards, this country is looked on, right. <laughs> you know, just, just look at how the news media portrays El Salvador with, you know, rampant violence and MS-13 running around murdering and pillaging people and coming here and spreading the violence, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so that's not the full story. And of course, the full story is that you have this wonderful people who are um, living in a country that literally means the savior of the world. And there's, you know, the large statue of El Salvador del Mundo right there overlooking their capital city. And it's a people that um, just are thriving with faith. And one of the things that struck me when I, when I visited there, if you ever look, um, if you get a chance to Google El Salvador art, the, the artwork style of the country is made famous by this artist named Fernando Yort. And it's characterized by just vibrant, vivid colors that are playful, joyful, um, uh, almost aloof. <laughs> Oranges and purples and reds yeah. and... And greens and just kind of, you know, just in your face vibrancy. Yeah. And, and I was like, how could a people that supposedly are so downtrodden and, and suppressed and oppressed and should be living in constant yeah. sadness and tristeza and Like looking uh, at a fear. Picasso painting from the blue period. Yes. Yeah. How, how is it that their artwork is just imbued with such joy and vibrancy and and in color? It's like, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful paradox. And so that right there show me that that we have much to learn from this people because it's 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 their faith you know really carrying them through so uh to just describe a little bit of what happened i i went with a composer named carlos colon and he was invited by the archbishop of san salvador to compose some music specifically for these canonization events he's also from el salvador and so being that we're both sons of the country Mm -hmm. as it were we struck up a wonderful friendship and, and collaboration, and so I, I invited members of my diocesan choir from El Paso, Texas, who decided to go on this journey with me, this crazy journey that I didn't even know what was going to take place or how it was all going to happen. But there was a kind of a loose schedule of a tour that we would go and perform some of his works. We performed some of my works, some works together, and we were joined by a college choir from the University of Don Bosco in San Salvador. They had about another 30 singers, wonderful voices, wow. 
And so we joined together and presented these concerts in different parts of the country in anticipation of the massive Thanksgiving. The actual canonization took place in Rome two weeks earlier, okay. but, upon return, but, the, but upon return from yeah. Rome, all the bishops of Central America gathered for this massive, oh. massive Thanksgiving in the Plaza of San Salvador at the Metropolitan Cathedral, and we were the musicians. Oh, wow. So there, there was... No, <laughs> oh, my gosh. So we did, we did music. We did some of our pieces uh, in the Mass itself, including this the setting of the Te Deum Latinoamericano that, that Carlos composed, uh, as well as other uh, pieces throughout the Mass. And then afterwards, after the mass finished, you know, in which there were thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of people gathered in this outdoor, the plaza outside of the cathedral, and then afterwards, uh, we went uh, downstairs into the crypt, where Oscar Romero oh. is buried, and we sang in the presence of the gravesite, and uh, so we we did performance right there in the crypt, uh, you know, with people gathered around watching, and we sang these, this beautiful music, um, pieces composed specifically for the people of, of El Salvador gather around for a very powerful moment of prayer just around the gravesite. It was oh, just wow. powerful beyond belief. That's amazing. So, uh, yeah, tears. I mean, tears. Oh. <laughs> it's just, can you just yeah. imagine in the presence? And, uh, and then to have the Central American saint canonized, especially in this day and age where, where uh, the, you know, the oppression and, and uh, issues of social justice are just uh, you know, ever on our minds. And he's really a champion for this cause of the people. So to get behind it was um, an experience of just uh, such great magnitude at a personal level, faith level, musical level, oh, I uh, heritage. Wow. It was just, and, and my mother actually made the trip with me. Oh, wow. So my mother, was sister, and brother. Was that incredible for her? I mean, it was just amazing, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and two siblings of mine, so it was kind of a, little, a reuniting of the polka band. <laughs> but, <Aww>. So <laughs> my brother played trumpet for all the performances, yeah. and, my, and my sister was there as well, who's an artist. And to be able to share that with my friends from El Paso and this composer, and then to meet the, the, the people who hosted us mm-hmm. and literally treated us like you know guests of, a, of, of such great honor, absolutely powerful. It's just, wow. it was a life-changing moment, so transformative. Wow. We, we've talked about this a lot, but is there anything about your experience, uh, or grown up in Detroit and spent time in Chicago, is there anything about your experience you know, in your border area? You know, that sort of liminal space where the, where everything mixes. Wisdom that you've learned there that, you know, maybe you wish you'd known when you were here or you wish oh, okay. we knew. That's good. All right, let me see. Well, I think one, one of the things, and you can probably relate to this as well, you know, when I came onto the scene as a young church music person, as it were, you know, I was very enthused and filled with energy, but also kind of a naive uh, sense of I knew what I was doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and, and now I'm acutely aware of not only did I not know what I was doing back then, uh, but I somewhat still don't know what I'm doing now. And I'm routinely amazed at new things that I'm learning and seeing everywhere that I go. So certainly in where I live right now, I still, can, I still continue to see new things and ways of doing things that are unexpected. And I think to myself, that's, that's brilliant. It's really wonderful. And I wouldn't have thought of that from my position or stance where I was previously. I don't think I was capable of having seen that. But I'm gifted now with this opportunity to see these new expressions and, and how things you know, manifest themselves in liturgy and in faith and, and musical expression. So, so part of that is I, I realize that I don't know a lot now. <laughs> and I'm okay with that because... You know, God has put me on this 
journey and I'm continuing to be enlightened by the things I encounter along its way, I certainly hope to make a, a, a contribution both through my work, through assisting others in their work, to this ongoing prayer of ours. And I know that that prayer is beautiful and far larger than anything that we can imagine, both in terms of the language and the people who do it. You know, I see that all intertwined with family and how I worship with my own family and, and want to ensure uh, you know, the beauty of expression for my daughters and, and what they're going to know of their Catholic faith. And I know that music is very much going to be a part of that. And it's rich and encompassing and I guess the thing I'm, I'm grateful for in my life. For more information, including details about the music you heard on today's podcast, please visit our website at singamen.giamusic.com. Sing Amen is produced and supported by GIA Publications.